Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Finally, uh, we all compromised and said, okay, let's just get this thing done. For a few more meetings, we'll take all the testimony, we'll present it to Parliament. And one of those meetings was to be with the Kielberger brothers uh, on Monday. And now they're saying they're not coming and they're saying uh, that they will defy a legal injunction. And I think that that's, um, <laughs> I, 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 I don't even know what to say to them. That was the voice of uh, Charlie Angus uh, with us last weekend. Speaking about the Ethics Committee, of which he is a member, and Mark and Craig Kielberger agreeing to testify before the Parliamentary Ethics Committee. This has now happened on Monday. Uh, There's so many moving parts to this particular case. Uh, Mr. Angus was supposed to be with us tomorrow, by the way, and uh, he just sent me an email yesterday saying he can't do it. It's all right. So we'll talk to uh, We Charity legal advisor and the former chief of staff for Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and for Premier Mike Harris in Ontario, Guy Giorno joins us, and he's challenging the right of Parliament MPs to issue summonses to witnesses to appear before parliamentary committee hearings. And I'm speaking slowly because I, this mouse decided not to work. Mr. Giorno, how are you? Great. great, great glad to be here. Yeah, it's been a long time since you and I spoke. It's been a long time, <laughs> certainly. What is your role as legal advisor to E-Charity? So I, uh, I, I'm uh, part of the legal team that's, that's been uh, since last summer advising the, the, the charity uh, in, re- in relation to a, to, to a number of matters. And uh, I guess recently I had the occasion to be talking about the, uh, uh, the, the request of the um, uh, Standing Committee on Access to Information, Privacy, and Ethics, which you just talked about. Yeah, it's not really a request, is it? it well, a summons was issued for, for sure. Uh, but, you know, just it's important to know that... Uh, that uh, the, the co-founders of the charity, uh, this children's charity, Craig and Mark Kielberger, um, said they were going to come voluntarily before the uh, the committee. Now they, they've already appeared once before, testified for four hours, like longer than like any other witness this uh, uh, this parliament. Um, but we're asked back; they're willing to come back to this committee. Um, and then uh, what happened? They were scheduled for March eighth, actually. Was that uh, Charlie Angus, who who you played a clip of, who who I guess can't speak t- tomorrow? Um, uh, wrote uh, allegations to the RCMP, Canada Revenue Agency, uh, posted them, tweeted about them, and uh, that changed the dynamic because it, it uh, for charity, certainly, it meant that uh, what was going to be a simple exercise of answering questions now, you know, created all sorts of legal risk and uncertainty for the charity. But your op-ed in the National Post seemed to suggest, or did suggest, that MPs and parliamentary ethics, uh, parliamentary committees, if I understood it correctly, shouldn't have the option to summon private citizens to uh, to appear before before the committees. Is that correct? Certainly, that was what I wrote, and certainly that is that I think is a is a correct statement of of position in in the year twenty twenty one. Well, why not though? Because parliamentary committees have summoned witnesses forever. Well, they, they have, they've had, actually, the, uh, as I was saying uh, just the other day, um, the, the number of occasions uh, on which they have summoned people unconnected to government or made them produce documents are few uh, in relation to things unrelated to government activity are few and far between. Uh, the last case I can think of of that nature uh, involved a document production request of some 
management companies in Western Canada, and that was in 2004. So 15, like these do not have, it does not happen routinely. Okay, so these let me just let me let, let me just pursue this with you then. Yeah, uh, sure. the, the ethics committee isn't just investigating We Charity. The committee is investigating the relationship between Mr. Trudeau and his family and We. Stop me anywhere if I'm wrong. And and we do know that Justin Trudeau has two convictions by the Ethics Conflict of Interest Commissioner violation of the Conflict of Interest Act. So it makes absolute sense. I would think to the majority of Canadians that the Parliamentary Ethics Committee become engaged in the We Charity Trudeau family relationship, particularly since Mr. Trudeau has admitted a mistake by not recusing himself from cabinet discussion of We being the sole charity to administer the $900 million plus student grant program after declaring publicly We was the only charity capable of performing this task. Why Why shouldn't I, they go ahead and, and I, issue I think, the re- I, I, I think I accept the premise of most of what you've said. Uh, to the extent the issue is how um, this government program came to be, what the charity's role was, how the government reached that, that absolutely. But what what has been lost is that the new allegations that were introduced by Mr. Angus and put before the RCMP and put before the Canada Revenue Agency, which just for the benefit of your audience, I think they know this, is the regulator of income tax matters, and all charities are subject to its jurisdiction. It's a big deal for any charity to have. Canada Revenue Agency Income Tax Act issues, um, didn't relate to that program, didn't relate to the government, related to things that were happening um, in Kenya, and related to um, absolutely unrelated uh, allegations. And so the question is, is that that actually the role? Do we we elect people, send them to Parliament, to basically haul before them private entities to say, tell us anything about anything, we've got any allegation about what you've ever done, any place, anywhere. And that's, that's what, what's being lost. If this was simply about that program, that government program would be a different story. And, and, and in fairness, in fairness, that was where the Kielbergers had been willing to come voluntarily. And as of yesterday, it's now um, the weekend, as of yesterday, members of the committee were making statements on social media suggesting that they were going to, you know, um, now focus their questioning on things pertinent to this government program and the charity's role and government decision-making exactly as you've laid out. Okay, so now I want to go back to your op-ed. You wrote, why are parliamentary committees, three at last count, investigating a private organization? Is that not what law enforcement agencies are for? Well, yes, they are. However, there remain many questions about Mr. Trudeau and his PMO's bullying of former Federal Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould, over her refusal to succumb to the PM's desire, she intervened with federal prosecutors so they would not take snc Leveland to trial and instead enter into a deferred prosecution agreement. Now, we know the RCMP, Mr. Giorno, spoke to Ms. Wilson-Raybould about this. There's been speculation about possibly obstruction of justice by the PMO, but there's been nothing forthcoming from the RCMP about what their review, investigation, call it what you will, into this situation has revealed. So we can't always believe that law enforcement is the only option. And so given the questions about we and the Trudeaus, I don't have a problem with the Ethics Committee summoning Mark and Craig Kielberger. Where am I wrong? Well, they're, they're, you, 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 know, you use the names of people. And it's important to remember they're not just people. I mean, if it was, you know, I, I, they're not my, as people, I, I don't represent them as, as clients. And the issue really isn't them. That's fair, yeah. The issue is that we, is that we actually have a charity. Um, uh, the charity <laughs> politicians have, have done a really good job of canceling their activities in Canada, but the charity does have operations uh, overseas. It, uh, it operates a hospital, which provides uh, obstetrics, um, uh, surgery, uh, vision care to, 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 uh, to, to rural community in Kenya. It operates schools uh, where 
you know, for girls and boys, but for girls in particular, you know, sometimes it's the high school education is the, like the alternative or the escape from arranged marriages. It engages in partnerships so women can, can generate their own income and not have to be dependent on abusive relationships. Like, all those things are happening. So it, and I'm not saying that this, this, this charity, I mean, we've got many charities all across, Canadian charities, international charities, doing those good things. Uh, but for a charity, the point I want to make, you know, charities uh, with boards, uh, with oversight, regulation, it's a big deal. It's not, it's not a nothing. It's a really no, big No, I understand deal. that, and for I'm not policy, speaking... For a politician to write a letter, yeah. to the police say, you know, it's a, you know, you've been involved in charities, I have, everyone has, uh, for that to come across the desk, uh, that's a big thing for the board, uh, for oversight. And so the fact that charities treating this very seriously and saying, well, wait, wait a minute, we've got actual ongoing operations that are helping people, and it's, it's, it's a problem for there to be these parallel processes and then this public trial. No, I understand, but that's not the point I raised with you. That's not the point I raised with you. I'm, I'm yes. quoting your op-ed. Why are parliamentary committees, three uh, last count, investigating a private organization? Is that not what law enforcement agencies are for? And I was trying to make the case that over the SNC-Lavalin, Jody Wilson-Raybould, Justin Trudeau PMO situation, and an RCMP looking into it, we don't have any reports from the RCMP about what they've done. So so it's to most Canadians, it might seem absolutely acceptable that parliamentary committees will pursue the questions that we expect answers for uh, from law enforcement agencies. Well, I'll, let me address that. I, I see. I see. Sorry, I understand that your, your point. I, I do understand it, and I'll address it directly. I mean, the, the, the fact is, regardless of, and I can't really comment on that particular case. I'm aware of it from reading the news media and that. Right. You, you know, we may have questions about what the RCMP or this regulator or that regulator is doing in a particular case, um, but we still have some principles in Canada. These are, these are constitutional principles. Some of them are unwritten principles, part of the rule of law, which which is a non-interference by politicians in the law enforcement process. So, so I think the answer to your your question, bit hypothetical or not, is yeah, there is a problem. Even if one has issues with what the RCMP or the law enforcement agency is doing, in like the case you've mentioned, SNC Lavalin or whatever, there is a problem with politicians deciding that they are, they too are going to become law enforcement people and haul people before the before them. And the, re, and the reason is, um, you know, our system, our our justice system, our law enforcement system. It, developed over centuries, inherited originally, by the way, from the United Kingdom, right, provides all sorts of protections. The right to be heard, the right to be on counsel, the right to call witnesses. Parliamentary committees have none of that protection. So, yeah, I guess my answer is that it is a problem for a parliamentary committee to decide we're not satisfied, we don't think law enforcement is going anywhere, so we're going to take it ourselves. It's a, it's, it's a, it's not a small matter. If you're the entity involved, it's a, it's a really big matter. The federal government's CRB, or CERB, program crashed through its estimated cost of $6.3 billion to, according to the parliamentary budget officer, reach a cost of $11.1 billion. And the PBO report published this week estimates spending estimates for the 21-22 fiscal year to reach $342 billion, with $22 billion of it tied to COVID spending. Canadians will have to wait longer than this month, by the way, another issue here, for a federal budget. Makes Canada the only G7 nation to not present a budget for more than two years. Yves Giroux is the parliamentary budget officer. He's also one of our favorite guests. You know, I have so many side bets going on now. I have no idea. I have no idea where we stand with these side bets, uh, uh, Mr. Giroux, but thanks very much for coming back on the show. My pleasure. Well, what does the fact that uh, the CERB program cost almost twice its estimate, $6.3 billion versus $11.1, suggest within the context of pand- pandemic-related government support program spending? Well, it suggests that there are still many people that remain unemployed, despite the fact that we see that 
based on Statistics Canada's numbers yesterday, job creation is still progressing at a very rapid pace. There are still a lot of people who depend on government supports uh, for 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 their living. So it, it's not surprising in that sense that the CRB costs are going up. And it's also not surprising that the government has decided to extend the duration, the maximum duration of the CRB, which will further increase its cost by probably an additional $5 billion. You suggested, if I have this correctly, that the federal government should be pulling back on spending on pandemic relief programs. Uh, What exactly are you suggesting to the government? Because they're not. Well, what I've been suggesting is that when the government sees that the economy is recovering and that the situation is getting better, then there will be scope for reducing that unprecedented and temporary spending. That's the only way to return to more normal levels of deficit or hopefully maybe even one day to a balanced budget. But if the government maintains that temporary spending and makes it permanent, then it's never going to return to normal levels of deficit or sustainable levels of deficit. So that's what I mean by um, reducing the the unprecedented supports for COVID-19 uh, spending, because at one point we'll have to, to, to tone it down a bit so that we can return to more normal levels. But, but this will obviously happen when people feel comfortable returning to their normal pre-pandemic activities. And, and I think that will happen only once the majority of people have a, a vaccine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you told us in our first interview some months ago that uh, this kind of spending that was done in 2020 could be done once and only once. And now we have the finance minister suggesting that up to $100 billion will be spent over three years to stimulate the economy, but they haven't said on what. Uh, is this open checkbook policy, uh, d- does this have risks that you have concerns about? Yeah, we have. Con- I have concerns with that, and I, I mentioned these in December, after, right after the minister tabled the fall economic statement, in which she mentioned additional spending of between seventy to hundred billion dollars over three years. And at that time, the intention was to stimulate the economy to return to pre-pandemic employment levels. But by many many people's estimates and projections, including ours at the PBO. Even without that stimulus spending, the economy could be returning to pre-pandemic levels of employment sometime in the next year, 2022. So mid-2022, we could well be at pre-pandemic levels. And the employment growth that we've seen in yesterday's release by StatCan is pointing in that direction. So what we've said in, in December is that this stimulus could be too much and could be too late if it's over a three-year period. That's if it's stimulus. If, on the other hand, the government wants to make structural changes to the economy, that's a different issue. The government is well within its right to to spend on many things if it wants to make structural changes to the economy. For example, if it wants to make the economy greener, that's a policy issue. But if the point is to stimulate the economy and return to pre-pandemic level, then that would clearly be too much and it would be too late. What is uh, your concern, if you have concern, about the fact that we haven't had a federal budget presented for now more than two years? I have a big concern, and, and the big concern I have is that it's very difficult for those who vote on this spending, parliamentarians, to figure out exactly where we're at, because the budget is 
the document that lays it out in one place for parliamentarians and for Canadians to know what's the fiscal and economic situation of the country and what is the government's plan for the next few years. In the absence of a budget, we have to keep track of all the multiple announcements that are made, that have been made over the last year, and that continue to be made uh, ad hoc, um, outside of the House, in various venues, new programs, extension to existing programs, changes to recently announced programs and extensions. It's very difficult to follow the flow of money. So there's no clear picture of the situation of the government's finances. And more importantly, there's no plan, no idea of what the government intends on doing for the next year or two. Now, they say it's very difficult to do. Well, maybe they should take a, they should take a lesson or two from provinces because all provinces have been able to do it. So maybe provinces could teach the feds how to do that because they've all done it and they'll do it again soon. Yeah, for sure. Mr. Giroux, thank you very much for the time. And when I talk about side bets, I guess people would have to listen to our first interviews to understand what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good good point, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I should I should listen to that too to refresh my memory. Yeah, yeah, because you, uh, you, I think you're in my debt. <laughs> <laughs> nice try. At least that's my story. <laughs> As we turn the corner into year two, unfortunately, it's been with us that long and will be with us for some time, I suspect, the pandemic. The Canadian Global Public Health Intelligence Network, also known as GFIN, was arguably the world's leading agency to find and analyze events and various actions which pointed to global health threats, emerging health threats. GFIN was instrumental in discovering the emergence of SARS in 2003 and uh, discovered the Ebola outbreak in 2009. It served, the agency served the Federal Government of Canada as well as the World Health Organization. In 2018, the Federal Government essentially disbanded GFIN. So the question is, and the problem started earlier than that in 2014, but the question is, might an active GFIN unit have discovered COVID long before the world did and precluded the early PHAC, Public Health Agency of Canada announcements, that was followed by political announcements that COVID was a low-level threat. Uh, Michael Garner joins us on The Roy Green Show, former senior science advisor and epidemiologist at the Public Health Agency of Canada. He is a minister at uh, St. Thomas the Apostle Church in Ottawa. Dr. Garner, good to talk to you. It's actually just, it's either Reverend or Mr. I am not a doctor. Okay. I'm glad to be here, Roy. All right, Reverend. Thank you for joining us. At, At its peak performance... What was GFEN's role, and how did the agency become arguably the world's very best medical scientific early warning system for emerging global health threats like SARS and MERS and Ebola? So GFEN um, worked in this really fascinating way where they they would scan um, media and other news-type outlets and information sources um, in a whole host of languages, and basically looking for signals. So it was not a sort of confirmation instrument, but sort of a intelligence-gathering unit that would scour the world um, for these signals, and these signals would then be processed by experts and sort of assessed and tracked over time to see if there was actually something beyond this very early 
media report in, say, you know, a province of China or a province, you know, part of Canada or wherever it was occurring in the world. And, and so it was, it provided this early bit of, you know, a hand going up saying, hey, there may be, we may need to pay attention to something over here. And it was, and it was this, um, yeah, excellent system that was put into place in the early um, days of the, the public health agency. Mm-hmm. So they would, uh, GFIN would actually look at uh, various trends. They might be economic, they might be financial, they could be health-related, anything that would, would point toward a potentially emerging global health threat, and they'd be on it, and, and had an incredible success record. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the complicated thing about GFIN is that it would it's just providing these signals, which then, you know, in my context at the public health agency, would be fed into the discussions, the daily discussions of, of senior leaders to say, you know, okay, we're now aware of this. What else do we know? Um, things would go to the WHO, and it would, it would sort of spur this conversation and this awareness, which ultimately is meant to either get people on the ground earlier, but also just provide another piece of evidence and help us direct where we may look. So if the signal from GFIN sort of built up enough, there would be, there are other ways to sort of then really take a look at what was going on. Mm -hmm. Very skilled people were at that uh, agency. Its administration changed, as I understand it, during the final years of the Harper government. And by 2018, its primary role had eroded to the point that scientists from GFIN had been assigned to well, things like studying the impact of vaping on Canadians. And you communicated, if I understand this correctly, after you left PHAC, and on behalf of scientists within the agency, that they'd had difficulty making bureaucrats and appointees within public health understand the urgency of health threats. Yeah, I mean, this all stems back to a change in the Public Health Agency of Canada Act, um, which established the agency, that it was buried in an omnibus, omnibus um, bill that the Harper government passed, basically demoted the chief public health officer from the deputy head of the, of the agency down to an advisor role and put a career bureaucrat in charge of the agency. And I think the, the key point there is the Public Health Agency of Canada, from my best assessment, is the only national public health institute in the world, at least in the developed world, where a non- expert is ultimately in charge. So the CDC, for example, in the United States, has a public health professional, a medical doctor, in charge of the agency. Whereas, for fact, that is actually just a career bureaucrat. And that then signaled this devaluation of science, which pervaded the organization. And as science was devalued, and I think that started under Harper, but I think, I think the Harper government and the Trudeau government have equal blame to bear and perhaps the Trudeau government more because even the sort of the lift they paid to science and there was there has been more investment in science some of these fundamental changes that were made were never corrected and you have someone like Carolyn Bennett who was the minister in charge when the Public Health Agency of Canada was created saying the changes the Harper government was making to the act were bad news but then after six years or so in power, they never actually changed it back. So you have this eroding of scientific expertise in the agency. So then what GFIN is and the whole situation around GFIN, it's a symptom or an example of a broader thing within our public health, our national public health organization, where 
non-experts are in charge of very technical systems, and they just and they just don't understand what those systems are meant to do. So there's this wholesale dumbing down where uh, a lot of the information coming out of GFIN and other parts of the agency is technical and complicated, but there's a lack of understanding. So you're trying to explain a very complicated public health science issue to someone who is a human resource expert. So it's just not an appropriate person to be in charge of some of those areas. Mm -hmm. So by the time COVID became an acknowledged international health threat of great proportion and federal Canadian agencies had publicly assessed the COVID threat as low at that time, the cat was out of the proverbial bag and intervention appeared to be trailing the spread of COVID internationally. So what might the outcome and the impact of COVID have been if GFIN were to have been operating at maximum capacity at the end of 2019 and beginning of 2020? How much could the spread of COVID have been mitigated, do you think? I think it's, so I think it's a twofold answer. One is if you get more signals early, people are more convinced that something important is going on. So I think that so, yeah, there would have been perhaps potentially have a real... I think the other piece, the mitigation of that first wave, and then public you know, health in, in because you subsequent thing, you know, career bureaucrats, not the messaging to Canadians is clear, and I think there's been a real there's problem with a harder messaging, clear messaging on you know people are some drastic actions, which ultimately we had to do. And I think the important thing is all of every day that we delayed doing some of these strong actions. For joining us, the obviously there's a need for GFIN and there's an investigation underway. Sort of the loosening of restrictions, but in know. that moment... Uh, but there's supposed to be an investigation of what happened with GFIN. I think you just describe it to us. have mitigated not all of the impact by all means, but you may have been able to really... I, I, I have heard of, of where some of those uh, recommendations have been where there's a child or an individual, not necessarily a child, that has been in close contact and, and, and is asked to quarantine alone. Um, I, I think we need to all use our, our common sense when it comes to children in particular, or our elderly as well, in the care that they need. Uh, there is no, and we have no business uh, in my mind, uh, telling people to quarantine a two, three, four-year-old, five-year-old child alone in their room, to slip a, a meal through the door a couple of times a day, we're parents. Um, we, we, we just, that's just simply not the way that I, I would expect uh, advice to be going out from any health authority. So there's the Premier of Saskatchewan last uh, weekend with us, Scott Moe, and I was asking him about the fact that in some cases, and I'm going to share this with you right now, and you're aware of a lot of this, I'm sure, already, that children have been ordered to be self-isolating in their homes because they've had some possible contact with someone in their cohort at school who tested positive for COVID-19. So uh, a Hamilton parent shared with me the principal of her school's elementary um, school left a robocall message instructing the child must self-isolate in the home for 14 days. A public health nurse called the very next day to ask if this was taking place. Here's the script. That uh, of what the principal left, and I did receive this from the medical officer of health communications people in the city of Hamilton. So what uh, the parent would have heard is this is an important COVID-19 alert. Good evening. This is name of principal. Hamilton Public Health Services informed us today that someone in your child's cohort has tested positive for COVID-19. To protect the student's privacy, we don't disclose their name. 
All students within their cohort are deemed close contacts. The cohort includes class bus before and after school care. As a result, your child will be self-isolating for 14 days from the last exposure. Public Health will confirm with you. Hamilton Public Health Services has requested that all close contact individuals get a COVID-19 test. Public Health will contact you directly for the contact tracing. All right, so uh, let's talk about this. And joining me is uh, Dr. Martha Fulford, infectious diseases specialist at McMaster University in Hamilton. Dr. Fulford, thank you very much for the time. You're not unfamiliar with this kind of messaging and what's going on and the provincial uh, regulations. What does what I just read to you, the message that the principal left to the parent, what does that suggest to you? It was disappointing, given that just a week before this had been brought up, and uh, it had actually been brought up at one of the press conferences with uh, Dr. Williams and, the pre- and, and our premier. The risk of a child, and remember, these children aren't sick. There's a possibility of an exposure. We know that secondary transmission in schools has been very low. This is clear in Ontario and across Canada. So this advice is being given for a very a, a healthy child who may have been had a low what I would have deemed actually a fairly low risk contact. But, but to advise formally that a child needs to isolate with no nuance with regards to to the potential harm to the child, I personally think is very dangerous. Children need nurturing, they need love, they need attention. And the last thing in the world that I would want is to, is is for a child to essentially be punished for it, for going to school. And the message a year in, now that we know, there are a lot of things we have learned. Children do not get severely ill from COVID. It is extremely uncommon. The harms that are being perpetrated in our children with the school closures and with the isolation and and with the lack of all the extracurricular activities is profound. And then to to do something like say, you have to be essentially confined to a room for 14 days for something that is actually not dangerous to you, for something that has actually not been shown to be a big risk to the community, in other words, schools or children, it just strikes me as profoundly wrong and harmful to our children. We should, a year in, be able to have messaging that is much more nuanced and age-appropriate and, quite frankly, compassionate. So when I look at uh, Public Health Ontario's uh, Coronavirus Disease 2019, How to Self-Isolate Instructions, where it says avoid contact with others, and this is for everyone, maybe easier for an adult than a six-year-old, no visitors unless essential, i.e. care providers, Stay away from seniors and people with chronic medical conditions, i.e. diabetes, lung problems, immune deficiency. As much as possible, stay in a separate room away from other people in your home and use a separate bathroom if you have one. Make sure that shared rooms have good airflow. If these steps are not possible, keep a distance of at least two meters from others at all times. When I read that last one, Dr. Fulford, am I wrong? I'm hearing, don't hug your mom. That's certainly how it could be interpreted. You're saying no contact. Does does what I just read to you mitigate in any way what you said before I read it? No, because we're we're essentially giving this very strict message 
for all circumstances with no provision for, for the potential harm, and this is particularly with young children, we basically should have very specific instructions that protect our children. Any policy, anything that we do right now with COVID, particularly a year in, we should, we've learned enough that we could have individualized messaging, or at least age-specific messaging, and no policy, no public health policy a year into this. Uh, we, we should have been able, and we, we should have now, policies and strategies and procedures that are child and adolescent specific, where we're saying we need to do the least conceivable amount of harm to our children and maximize their health and well-being. And there are a lot of nuances we could say. Young children are not to be isolated. In that scenario, think about doing you're going to have to maybe say that the household needs to be be kept, which is, I suspect, what a lot of parents are doing, of course. There are other things that we, a year in, that we should be doing. And most important, particularly for children, is what can they do? Well, they can leave their room. They are allowed to have meals with their families. They are allowed to go outside. They are allowed to go and play on the swings. So that we we are still keeping them away from a potential high risk contact without essentially punishing them and and causing them harm by confining them somewhere in isolation for 14 days. Well, isn't this really a case of they're trying to force-feed a one-size-fits-all solution, quote-unquote? Yes, and and March of last year, when we weren't sure what we were going to face, and this is what the the self-isolation policy was, Maybe it made sense because we, we didn't know what we were going to be facing. A year in, we have a lot more information. One of the, and I keep repeating this and I'll keep saying it again, one of the, what I think is a remarkably good news story about COVID is it doesn't make young people very sick. It is a virus that has a significant impact on, on, on seniors and has a minimal impact on, on youth and younger adults. It's not that it will never do that, but we should be immensely grateful for this. We should be celebrating it. And knowing this, we should be looking actively at encouraging activities that are safe for our youth and, and basically looking after their entire health. I mean, health being a, a, a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being. It's not just the absence of COVID. And, and we even in the event of a contact, at this point, we should be able to have nuanced and age-specific messaging so that we minimize the, the possibility of transmission to a high-risk person mm-hmm. without causing more harm. And this is all about risk and benefit. Clearly, we want to continue to avoid closed spaces, crowded spaces, really close contact settings where there may be a risk of transmission, but it doesn't mean solitary, essentially the equivalent of solitary confinement for a child or a, a, a teenager, quite frankly. We all know that we're seeing increasing harm to our children. We're seeing increasing eating disorders, increasing drug abuse, increasing calls to to helplines. There are now stories coming out of increasing cyber abuse and sexual, uh, cyber sort of sexual abuse. All of these things are important. We need to acknowledge that there is harm being done and minimize that. And we're not minimizing it by isolating our kids. Dr. Fulford, I uh, I thank you for coming on. I just have a visual. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> uh, I just well, you're more than welcome. I, uh, yeah. I I keep visualizing a little child who now has to try to understand that this they're being isolated in their own home, and they're little. 
they, they don't have any life experience. They're already scared of what they're facing, uh, and now they they're being isolated. It's just it's just a it's just let's let's jam it all into the one size fits all. Uh, model so that we can answer most uh, easily for ourselves. And when it comes to a policy discussion, it just it just doesn't make any sense to me. Thank you. Great talking to you, Dr. Fulford. Thank you again, Dr. Martha Fulford, infectious diseases specialist at uh, McMaster University. Yeah. Oh, look. If you have a personal experience with this reality, why don't you send me an email? to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com, to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. If you're a parent who has received one of these notes or robocalls or your kids are being isolated or they want you to isolate your kids in, in your home, what's your circumstance? Send me an email to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com, and perhaps we can do a follow-up program. I won't identify you. Don't worry. I won't identify you. I'm just curious. Is this happening right across the country? Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.